0: So Ruth chapter 1, let's hear the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilion died, so that the the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, May the Lord do so to me, and also more, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest.
1: Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's great to uh, see you. I hope you managed to um, sleep well and fed well, but not too well, I hope. (laughs) Uh, I do love these chairs. I hope we can maybe organise a kind of slightly sloping floor. So that by the time we get to the end of the meeting, you'll all be here. That will make the appeal so much easier to manage, because <laughs> you'll already be here. Uh, I, I don't know kind of what a bit sort of event this is. I'm not used to having two clocks to, uh, to look at, so I shouldn't go on for too long. It reminds me, uh, I do come from Suffolk. We're a little bit behind in Suffolk. My, uh, my favourite church in Suffolk was a church that had a clock that went backwards. <laughs> I discovered that the longer I preached, the earlier we finished. <laughs> and uh, I've never ever managed to quite get over that. Uh, seriously, I do hope that when <clears throat> we um, come to the end of uh, Ruth chapter 1, we, we will want to pray together. I, I travel the country extensively um, for FIEC, and I take a little Martian with me, and on the way home, the Martian and I discuss the events of the day. How did you find today, I asked the Martian. He says, well, they, they loved God a lot. They were rather afraid of him. The good news is they didn't expect him to do anything. And uh, I do pray with all my heart that that won't be our experience today. I do hope we do take God very seriously. I do hope in our hearts we are rather afraid of him. He is much bigger than we can imagine. But if we've come not expecting him to do anything, the danger is we might not be disappointed. So why don't we just start with the expectation that God will speak, that he will move, he may comfort, he may disturb, but we should need to pray for one another by the time we get to the end. Well, that's what I'm going to pray for now. Father God, we've just been reminded that the Holy Spirit shows by works of power that Jesus is Lord. And I pray now that over these next few moments, the Holy Spirit will show through words of life that Jesus is Lord. Uh, We don't recognise Lord Jesus, your Lordship, as some abstract reality. We regard it as the controlling reality of the world in which we live. And we ask now, Lord Jesus, come among us powerfully. Do us good. We don't want you to challenge us. We want you to change us. So hear our prayer, please, because we ask this for the good of your your name and for the good of the mission that we represent here today. Fasten your seat belts. That's the message that comes across the PA. The captain says, we're about to experience turbulence. Well, in our kind of world, turbulence is uh, often more familiar than tranquility. Just look at your television. Watch the harrowing pictures from Syria, or Iraq, or France, or Germany or the borders of the European Union, or pretty well anywhere in the USA. Watch, we, we watch with bated breath as events take their course around the other side of the world. Somehow trouble seems to spring out of nowhere. And in our turbulent world, it isn't always easy to see the hand of God at work. And yes, it doesn't, of course, it doesn't just happen, does it, on an international scale within our experience of life. Relationships break. Careers fold. Ill health strikes. And the turbulence that is out there is experienced in here. And which of us doesn't ask at some time or another, where is God in all this? It's a very human question. It's a very human question because our horizons are so low, our perspective is so narrow, the the obstacles are so great. But it's also a very ancient question. But as we look together at the Old Testament book of Ruth over the four mornings of our time together, I hope we will see that there is an answer to the question, where is God in all this? You see, there's hardly been a period of Old Testament history more turbulent than the era of the Judges. Oppression, civil strife, social chaos, personal misery. They saw it all. It's a time of prolonged turmoil for the Israelites. And the last verse of the book of Judges, the book before the book of Ruth, tells us why. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone saw, uh, did as they saw fit. Gosh, that sounds contemporary. This is a world where chaos reigns, a world in which there's no accountability, a world in which life has been reduced to a free-for-all. And it's against this background, this background, with tomorrows far less certain than ours that the events recorded in the Book of Ruth take place. And in them, the ancient question is asked once more, where is God? in all this. Before we get into the passage, let's just think for a moment about the power of stories. From our earliest days, we all love good stories. I absolutely love someone re-sitting down and reading me a story. I love reading stories to my grandchildren. And good stories don't get much better than this one, as we just touched on last night. Tell people when you get home that we've spent time studying the book of Ruth And they'll all say, I think universally, without exception, ah, I love the book of Ruth. Why do we love the book of Ruth? Because it's a cracking good story. And maybe one reason we're drawn to stories is because human beings are instinctive, inveterate storytellers. The way we make sense of life is by weaving the different roles and circumstances of our lives together into our own personal plot line. Our personal identity is bound up in the story we tell of ourselves. Of course, the point about being Christians is that we believe that it's God who's directing the plot of our story. He's up to something. Our story isn't reality TV. Our story is reality Well, like all God's stories, this particular story is deeply purposeful. This is a story about redemption. The idea of redemption crops up again and again and again through this story. At its simplest, redemption is setting someone free at enormous cost. And although the book is named after Ruth and she is the heroine, it is primarily the story of Naomi and how Ruth, brings redemption to her. So let's get in to chapter one, one act comprising three scenes. Scene one, God moves in a mysterious way. Look how the story begins. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, a famine. In the land, that's an ominous start, isn't it? Mm. In a world where God is super abundantly generous to us, it's hard for us to get our head around what a famine might look like or feel like. The the biggest disaster that happens to me on the food front is that Waitrose run out of organic potatoes. (laughs) What would it feel like if there was nothing on the shelves in Waitrose? If it wasn't just VHS that was disappearing From the high street. So verse 1, a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. This man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion. We're, We're dealing with a refugee story here. There's a very contemporary ring about this, isn't there? Today there are thousands and thousands and thousands of families on the move. They're fleeing from war. They're seeking for food. They're just wanting a better way of life. If Elimelech were here with us today, he'd say, I understand. There's a kind of quick picture of the journey they take. Jerusalem is marked on the map, but don't forget that at this particular point in Old Testament history, Jerusalem hasn't yet developed the significance it will in days to come. maybe you can hear the conversation back in Bethlehem as Elimelech and Naomi sit around an empty dining table. We can't cope with this much longer. It's better to do something than stay at home and starve. We've got to think about the boys. And slowly, Elimelech begins to see something he's never seen before. He begins to see Moab in a new light. It becomes a place of hope for Elimelech. Interestingly, the narrative doesn't offer any judgment on this decision. It simply reports the fact. And anyway, this isn't meant to be permanent. Look at verse 1 again. It's only for a while. Elimelech and his family have no intention of seeking permanent rights of residency in Moab. It's only until the rains return to the promised land. And then they'll return. But should Elimelech have led his family to Moab? It's an easy question for us to ask. But which of us hasn't made the same decision? somewhere in our lives to find food in Moab. All this ought to get us thinking, of course. Why is there drought in the land that's meant to be flowing with milk and honey? Mm -hmm. How, How did this happen? What's gone wrong? And then we remember those haunting last words of judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so in our story, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We, we know from judges the sort of strife that's plaguing Israel through these days. Fields destroyed by foreign armies, guerrilla warfare as God's people tried to resist another, grab for power in the Middle East. But the most likely explanation for this famine is that it's just stopped raining. And in Old Testament language, when it just stops raining, it's time to start thinking. The weather, I love the weather on the telly, and but the weather on the telly in the book of Judges doesn't just describe the meteorological conditions in Israel. It kind of charts the spiritual temperature in Israel. And the fact that there's a famine means that here is a people who turned their back on the living God. But it isn't just a what's happening here. It's a who's at work here. Many, many, many years before, it was a famine that brought Jacob and his family to Egypt, where they became a mighty nation. God was at work then, furthering his plans, moving things forward. And strangely, strangely, God might just be at work here too. But before we plough on, let's just not miss the irony of these events. The irony ought to stop us making think again. Con- consider again where stri- famine strikes. It strikes in Bethlehem. Now that might not mean too much to, m- to us because we don't know much about Bethlehem except for the Christmas story. But Bethlehem means house of bread. And we're meant to spot the irony. There is no bread in the place called the house of bread. Then consider who it is who's brought to the brink of disaster by this famine. It's a man called Elimelech. His name means my God is king. And the man whose God is king chooses to leave the house of bread in order to find food. And then consider where he goes to get help. He goes to Moab. Moab of all places. Moab, the land of God's enemies. Moab, the land that God cursed back in Deuteronomy 23. Why did God curse them then? Because then the people of Moab would not give bread or water to the people of God as they made their long and arduous journey across the wilderness. This is the place where Elimelech, The man whose name means, my God is king, goes to find bread, because there is no bread in the house of bread. Do you see how the the ironies are building up in these early verses? The the famine comes to the house of bread. The man whose name means, God is king, is forced to leave home to survive. And where does he go? To the people who've never, ever been willing to lift a finger to help the people of God in the past. It's with these people that Elimelech chooses to make his home. It's from these people that his sons take their wives. Even though God has said no Moabite should be welcomed amongst the Lord's people for 10 generations. Striking, isn't it? But far away from the famine in Bethlehem, tragedy strikes in Moab too. Elimelech dies. Still, this isn't the end of the story. In time, the two boys marry Moabite girls. Naomi will yet have a family to care for her. But though she waits, and she waits, and she waits, the news doesn't come. Months turn into years. Naomi gives up waiting for the phone to ring. Congratulations, mum, you're going to be a granny. Philosophically, she folds up the knitting patterns and puts them in the bottom of the drawer. She stops logging on to see the latest bargains at mother care. And then disaster strikes again. In quick succession, both her sons die. There are kind of shades of Job going on here, aren't there? Within ten years, Naomi's lost her home, her husband and both her boys five short verses, Naomi's world has fallen apart. She's left tending three graves in the corner of a foreign field. This is turbulence. We often say no mother should ever have to bury her children. Well, here's Naomi suffering the greatest loss that any woman can suffer. And look how our author puts it in verse 5. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. That is the second time in these short verses we've read the phrase, and Naomi was left. And Naomi was left, abandoned, forsaken, alone. She's a widow now, a widow without a family, a widow without any visible means of support a widow without a man to care for her in a harsh, uncaring world where you need a man to care for you. And worse still, she's a foreign widow in the land of Moab. Though she's been in the land for ten years now, though she watches her sons take Moabite daughter, uh, women for their wives, she'll always be a foreigner. We're just five verses into the book and Naomi's world has fallen apart. Not a great start, is it? And here's another irony. Naomi's name means pleasant. Well, may she ask, where is God in all this? Wouldn't you? Your your experience may not be as extreme as hers, but her circumstances are not unique. Maybe what she's facing here resonates with stuff that's going on in your life right now. It's easy to say, well, of course it was her fault. She shouldn't have gone to Moab in the first place. You do reap what you sow, you know. We all have to live with the consequences of our actions. Gosh, have I said things like that from time to time. It's true. But it's not the whole truth. We also know that every tragedy that befalls us is not self-inflicted. And anyway, how much say did Naomi have in Elimelech's decision to leave Bethlehem for Moab? The truth is that we're not just sinners, we're sufferers too. We live in a fallen world and pain awaits. And Naomi was left. So it is to this woman, this woman at the end of her tether, the news comes in verse 6. Naomi hears that in Moab and hears in Moab that the Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food. It's like a ray of sunshine breaking through a leaden sky. The Lord has come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. But when the Lord visits his people and brings the famine to an end, where is Naomi? Is she God's woman in God's land ready to embrace God's blessing? She's in a foreign land, tending three graves, all alone. And a little bit, a little bit, like the prodigal son in Jesus' story, there is only one course of action open to Naomi, to go home to Bethlehem, the house of bread. Actually, that's the pattern of the Bible, isn't it? Humankind leaving paradise in search of something better, only to be wooed back home again. So, scene one, God moves in a mysterious way. Scene two, you fearful saints, fresh courage take. Packing their bags with Naomi are her two Moabite daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. What makes her stop along the way, we we don't quite know. Perhaps as they're moving along, it suddenly dawns on Naomi that these two girls are making exactly the same mistake that she made 10 years earlier. They're leaving their homes for a foreign land. Maybe they should stay here and make a fresh start with their own people. Whatever the reason, it's at this point that Naomi breaks the silence and speaks her first words in the story. Verse 8, listen to them carefully. Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. There's kind of a striking, surprising emphasis on the Lord here in these words, isn't there? May the Lord show kindness to you. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest. Isn't that interesting? In the midst of the pain of her own heart, she speaks words of blessing to her two daughters-in-law. May the Lord show you kindness. We've kind of bumped into one big Bible word already, redemption. Well, here comes another. Kindness. Hesed is the Word in Hebrew it's hard to translate because there just is no English word that's kind of big enough to capture the the depth and the richness of this word hesed. Translators use words like kindness, loving kindness, mercy, faithfulness, loyalty. Hesed is one of the richest, most powerful words in the Old Testament. It brings together in one everything that's good and great about God's covenant love for his people. And here, strangely but wonderfully under the circumstances, this, Hesed, is what Naomi desires for her daughters-in-law. May the Lord show you kindness. Why should the girls return home? Well, Naomi lays it on the line in verse 13. These are the brutal facts. Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have Another husband, even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. The brutal truth is, girls, I've nothing left to offer you. you feel the pain in that? And listen to this, even if I thought there was still hope for me, I don't think there's still hope for me. Girls, stay with me and you're saddling yourselves with the life of a no-hoper. But that's not the full extent of it, because we feel the full extent of it. At the end of verse 13, it is more bitter for me than for you, because here we come, the Lord's hand. Is turned against me. There it is again. The Lord, his hand, is turned against me. The one whose covenant kindness I long for you to experience has turned his face away from me. Stay with me. You're not just saddling yourself with a no-hoper. Stay with me. And you're saddling yourself with a woman under the judgment of God himself. And the time old question raises its head all over again where is God in all this? Can we stop for a moment and reflect? Well, what is Naomi saying? Well, she's clearly not saying that she's given up on God. I think she's saying that God's given up on her. She still believes in a God who is kind and gracious. She wants God to be kind and gracious to these two women she loves so much. No, but she has stopped believing in a God who could be kind and gracious to her. And I wonder if that resonates with someone here this morning. We counsel others. We pray for others. But somehow my personal situation is different. And Satan's quick to come and sow seeds of doubt. You've blown it. The God you say you worship, yes, he kind and gracious he may be, but he's not going to be kind and gracious to you. And that's why Naomi counsels the girls to go home. Her words, her words call for choice, for decision. In response, there's a division between the girls. Look at verse 14. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother in law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law's going back to her people and her gods go with her. It's a slightly strange piece of advice to give, isn't it? See, this isn't just a decision about where you live. This isn't just a decision about family and future. This is a, a spiritual decision. Orpah chooses Moab. She chooses her family. She chooses Chemosh, the god of the Moabites. And Naomi doesn't blame her. She somehow sees the senses. And incidentally, if anyone does know what happens to Warper, please have a word with Shirley, because she can't sleep (laughs) until she knows what happens to Warper. Someone put her out of her misery over coffee. But listen, Ruth is different. Ruth doesn't want to go back, because something is happening to her. Something is happening in her. And when Ruth finally speaks, her words mark an irrevocable break with Moab. And everything that Moab stands for. Listen again to her timeless words in verse 16. Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord deal with me. Be it ever so severely. If even death separates me. You and me those words in, can you? They're not just words of personal loyalty, are they? They're words of covenant commitment. They're words coming from a a woman whose life has been turned inside out because in faraway Moab the real God, the true God, the living God has reached into her life and laid his hand on her. It's a costly decision. She's willing to sacrifice everything that matters in her world. She's ready to leave her birthplace, her family, her nation, everything that's familiar to her. And in Naomi's rather jaundiced eyes, she's willing to leave her only hope of future happiness. Naomi left Bethlehem to find hope in Moab. And here's Ruth leaving Moab to find hope in Bethlehem and this isn't going to be for a while this is a decision for life from here on in Naomi's life will be Ruth's life Naomi's people will be Ruth's people and most of all Naomi's God will be Ruth's God this is it look at, again at verse 17 not even in death will she return to Moab she's the break she's making here is final and it's irrevocable and notice something else will you As Ruth speaks to Naomi, she takes on her lips the covenant name of God himself. Not just your God and my God, but the Lord, the covenant God of Israel, the God who gave that name to Moses at the burning bush. She calls him Lord. The God Naomi feels can never be kind or gracious to her, again. And in using his name like this, Ruth gives us a clue to what's going on here. Perhaps long ago, God had ceased just to be Naomi's God or Kilion's God. He became Ruth's God. Ruth made a decision long before they set out on the journey back to Bethlehem that he would be her God too. And now, perhaps for the very first time, she comes out with it And she takes his name on her lips. She confesses her trust in the God of Israel. It is a moving moment. And when Naomi hears this, she knows there's nothing else to say. Where do you think Ruth gets all this? What contact does Ruth have with the Gospel, Old Testament style? Well, the only witness she knows is Naomi. The only Bible she has to read is the life of Naomi. The only one she ever gets to hear pray is Naomi. Fascinating, isn't it? Naomi the most unlikely UFM missionary, operating in Moab in the days of the Judges. The last four verses tell us about the return to Bethlehem. They they both make it back, although for the time being, Ruth slips into the background as Naomi is greeted by the women of the town. Scene three. Behind a frowning providence. In his ode, uh, a poem rather, An Ode to a Nightingale, John Keats describes Ruth as a heart-sick daughter, far away from home. But as the story unfolds, we get to see that it's not Ruth who's sick at heart at all. It's Naomi. Naomi. Look with me at verse 19, will you? When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Again, there are shades, shades, I say, of the story of the prodigal son here. The idea of a community being stirred is usually an indication of some kind of celebration. Come on, get out the banners, put up the bunting, Naomi's back. She who was dead is alive again. She who was lost is found. But then the women of Bethlehem catch. They catch sight of this disheveled figure, trudging wearily along the high street. Then they're shocked. Can this be Naomi? They ask. Well, where's the limelight? Where are the boys? What happened? How can the one who went away with so much come back like this? And listen to her response in verse 20. God, give us the grace to feel the Bible, as well as to read it. To read it with feeling. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ouch you feel the pain of this? Four times in these few words, notice she attributes her misfortunes to God. The Almighty, he's made my life very bitter. The Lord, he's brought me back empty. The Lord, he's afflicted me. The Almighty, he's brought misfortune upon me. Where is God in all this? Naomi knows. She knows very well. She knows that God has not departed the scene for a moment. He's been active. He's been all too active. It's just she doesn't like what he's done. And she unloads all her pain and all her torment against him in one anguished cry from the depth of her heart. She left Bethlehem for he has brought her back empty. She lost her husband. She lost her boys. She lost her future. She lost her hope. She was Naomi the Pleasant One, but now she hates that name. She hates it with a passion because it reminds her of everything she's lost. Oh, God has reduced me to bitterness, she says. And now she stands before the people broken, penniless, and alone. How would you counsel Naomi? Well, it might help to start by differentiating between complaint and. Lament. Complaint is the expression of a bitter heart. It says, I hurt and I hate you, God. Lament is the expression of a bitter experience. I hurt. And I don't know where you are, God. And I wonder if our churches suffer from... Too much complaint, and not enough lament. I wonder if lament is a bit of a lost art among us. Don't hear many modern songs written that are laments. Sorry, that's not a rant, it's just an observation. See, Naomi is being very honest, scarily honest, rather more honest than I wonder if we would dare be. She knows that God is here. She's just broken by what he's done. It's the kind of honesty, isn't it, that runs all the way through the Psalms. But I wonder if there's a level of honesty we don't see much of today. I, I don't know how you picture Naomi at this point. Maybe you you see her as a a wizened, miserable-looking, old woman, twisted, cynical, resentful. If that's how you see her, I I wonder if that's true. I, I, I want to try and draw a distinction that you may just think is too fine. I wonder if there's a difference between becoming bitter and being broken by bitter experience. I I want you to think, first of all, about her relationship with her daughters-in-law. She loves them. She's concerned for them. In her own rather muddled and, uh, and maybe slightly mistaken kind of way, she's looking out for their interests. Bitter people don't do that. Bitter people are completely bent in on themselves. They're only concerned about what's happened to them. But Naomi's concerned about what's going to happen to Orpah and Ruth. It makes me think that she is not a bitter woman. That's one side of the coin. Here comes the other. How do her daughters relate to her? Well, the truth is they love her. They, They don't want to leave her. In fact, Ruth will not be parted from her. Now, now you may be better than I, and I'm sure you are. But being really frank with you, I don't want to hang around people who are bitter. They're so draining. They're so depressing. And yet, Ruth's daughter's in-law don't want to leave her. So it makes me wonder whether Naomi is not bitter. She's been broken by bitter experience. Our experiences may not have been as extreme as hers. But which of us sitting here this morning can't say we've been here too, at one time or another? So what are we to do? We're to treat God as if he's real. Go back to my little Martian. They take God seriously. They're rather afraid of him. They don't expect him to do much. Well, here in this story, God's done rather a lot. And I wonder whether we need to learn to be more real with God. Can he take it? Yes, he can. And this week, maybe some of us just need to learn to tell God honestly how we feel. Stop pretending that everything in the garden's rosy. He knows. The question is not, does he know? The question is, do we trust him enough to tell him? Or would we rather go on living with a pretense? You do realize we condemn ourselves to spiritual superficiality if we live with pretense. When we dare to tell him, it's then, it's only then, that we can begin to hear the echoes of mercy and the whispers of love. I love you in ways you have not begun to imagine. While this book is full of wonderfully good news of redemption, but we'll only be able to enjoy it when we're able to own the pain. We'll only be able to scale the heights when we dare to embrace the debt. Naomi's tears are our tears, aren't they? Don't try to inoculate yourself against the pain. The solution is not to bury it, it's to bring it to the only person you can bring it to in the end. But has Naomi got this right? Has she seen the whole picture yet? Well, just look at the last verse with me, will you? Verse 22. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Ah, however dark the story so far, and it has been pretty dark so far, Naomi has missed something. She's missed the fact that behind a frowning providence, there has been a smiling face. God's actually been smiling on Naomi for some time. He was smiling back in verse 6 when he came to the aid of his people by providing food for them. The tide has already begun to turn. The fact that God kindly provides us with food is a wonderful sign of his kindness. I love the, the quip that someone made that, listen, every time you pour milk on your cereal and you hear it snap, crackle and pop, you're listening to the sound of God's grace. Let's learn to listen. And God's smiling here in verse 22. Which time of the year is it? Naomi and Ruth (coughs) arrive in Bethlehem just as the barley harvest is beginning. Well, I never. The famine that set this whole chain of events in motion is over. At last there's food in the house of bread again. Let's learn to look around and see what God's doing. And God smiles as Ruth made that fantastic declaration of allegiance in verse 16. Does Naomi return alone? No, she doesn't. Has she returned empty? No, she hasn't. She's got Ruth with her. She has with her the key not only to her own future, but as we shall see, she has the key to the, whole, the future of the whole world. She has with her a remarkable young woman, that God has called to himself and who is going to be the means of her redemption. Let's learn to trust each other. But it goes further than that, doesn't it? Remember what this book's all about, the redemption of Naomi through Ruth. Ruth's loyalty to Naomi is just a pale reflection of something else, the Lord Jesus. Loyalty to us. He's the one who not only bears our sins but he's the one who makes our sorrows his sorrows he comes to weep with us he comes to weep for us he comes to weep over us and one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes where is God in all this where God has been all through this. While Naomi's world has been falling apart around her ears, he's been here, involved in her world, involved in her circumstances, working out his purpose. And at the end of chapter one, God has Naomi exactly where he wants her. Back in Bethlehem, at the beginning of barley harvest, with Ruth. Praise God. Why don't we stop there?